to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I am your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live today from Mesa, Arizona. And we've got a great guest on the show today. If this is your first time listening, you're going to enjoy hearing Brian's story. We've got Brian Schaefer coming in from uh, McCall, Idaho. So many of you may not know where McCall is, but uh, most of you have probably heard of Coeur d'Alene. So it's relatively close. I'll let kind of like Brian kind of explain that. But Brian is the CEO and founder of Edwood Log Homes and Big Cabin Log and Timber. So uh, that that part of the country is obviously very well known for that type of building. So Brian, welcome to the show. And we're excited to hear your story. Thank you, Austin. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we were just commenting before the show started about uh, how beautiful it looks there uh, in McCall, Idaho. You know, for those of you who aren't watching it on video, Brian's sitting there in in what looks to be a, a living room, maybe the living room of his of his house. The doors open, the sun's shining. You know, for a guy who lives in Arizona, uh, actually today it's pretty mild considering it's only eighty three degrees right now, and on on our way to a high of ninety four. So. That's better than the 115 that it was last week. We typically get a 30, 40 degree temperature swing from from day to night here at this at this elevation. Yeah, it's you know high 40s, low 50s at night. We get up oh 75 during the day, heat of the day. So it's a perfect time of year. Yeah, no, nothing wrong with 75. So speaking of 75, not to put the spotlight on me, but. 75 is about the temperature that it was on Saturday. I was in Madison, Wisconsin, and and I competed in an Ironman 70.3 race in in Madison, Wisconsin on Saturday. And it was 75, but with about 80% humidity when I finished that race. And I'd, I'd run the last probably seven miles in unabated sun. I mean, it's just, it's beaten down on you. And to make matters worse, I'm running on a pathway next to the lake that I did the swim in earlier that morning. And the sun's also then reflecting off the lake, making it that much worse. And man, by the time I hit mile 11, I thought, what in the world did I sign up for? Am I going to be able to finish this? This is crazy. <laughs> I can imagine. I, uh, so if you've done Ironman, you've probably been to Coeur d'Alene then. Is that, is that true? So I've been to Coeur d'Alene, but I've never done an Ironman in Coeur d'Alene. But uh, okay. I, yeah, I could, I couldn't imagine a more picturesque place to do one. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty popular for that reason alone, amongst others, from what I hear. But yeah, yeah, that's that's impressive. I yeah, uh, I used to used to run a bit. Never did any Ironmans, but did like in Spokane, they have a they have a, a Bloomsday race. This I think it's a NK or something, and I used to run that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, good for you. Yeah, I tell you, it's crazy to to see some of these athletes that show up. And, you know, the statistics are actually that only about 2%, less than 2% of the population will ever even attempt an Ironman. So it's, you know, it's a pretty small percentage of the population anyway. But, you know, when you get there and you see these people and you think, 
this is crazy. There's, you know, there were 1500 that did the 70.3 on Saturday and about 1400 that did the full Ironman. So 140.6 on Sunday. And out of those, call it 3000 people, 15 of them were doing both. <laughs> I just, yeah, I could, I couldn't imagine. And, and, and the crazy thing is there were also, there were males and females in their late seventies. And as a matter of fact, I got the results yesterday in email and they don't give you the full details, but a male in the 75 to 79 age range finished the race an hour and a half faster than I finished it. And I'm 47. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, was, that's good genetics. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Good genetics. And I'm sure, you know, he's been doing this for a number of years. You don't just decide at 75, I'm going to go do an Ironman and, and complete it that quickly, you know? Wow. Amazing. So that's great. That's a great story. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So Brian, tell us your story. Tell us, you know, where you grew up, you know, I know you got started in this business very early on. So just kind of give us your history, what you got, what got you started. If you want to sprinkle in your family stuff, great. If not, that's fine too. Okay. Yeah. So I was uh, born and raised up to about the age of 12 in Montana, a uh, product of two, two original homestead families coming together. And, and then, so, you know, I obviously enjoyed the, the lifestyle there growing up there in my early years and literally fishing almost daily and hunting and gathering. In fact, I didn't, we ate primarily from the land, I had a big garden and wild game. And I don't think I ever tasted beef until I was, until we moved from Montana, but we didn't move far. We moved to Idaho and Northern Idaho and, and been in Idaho ever since. So most of my, a lot of my family is still in Montana. And in fact, the original homestead on my dad's side is, is still in a family along Flathead Lake in Montana. And so I'm back there a lot. And then in Idaho, I went through the rest of, of uh, public school in Idaho and, and started my business in Idaho in uh, an area called, known as Lewiston, Idaho is where, is where I was at the time. And then uh, started my business there. And, and I, think, I think you know most of the rest of the story from there once I started my business. Yeah, I, I do, but our listeners don't. So maybe kind of fill them in on, on, you know, what led you to log homes or what led you to entrepreneurship in general, and then, you know, kind of the history of the, of the company. Well, uh, probably similar to your, you know, 75-year-old uh, guy that just blew you out of the water in, the, in your Ironman. I, I had, I think the entrepreneurial gene is in my, you know, it's in me, mostly probably, probably from my dad's side of the family. So, you know, at a young age in Montana, I remember we used to go down and get a haircut once a month at the local barber shop in town. And and I remember one time I was probably six, and and I asked the barber, you know, I, I saw some decorations, you know, in the in the storefront window there, and he said it was his Christmas decorations, his his sad attempt at Christmas decorations. And he wished he had some pine boughs that he could put around the window. And I said, well, if I bring you some, will you buy them from me? And he said, sure. You know, so I got my little red wagon and my hatchet and some bailing twine and went up in the woods behind town and, and got a load and just wheeled it down the sidewalk and 
And every time I, not every time, a lot of, a lot of stores, you know, I pass by and they say, what are you doing with those? And I tell them and they'd say, well, bring us a load. So I, you know, I earned money to buy my first unique bicycle that I wanted by doing that. And, and along the way, you know, teenage years in Idaho, similar stories. I just see an opportunity and, and try and capitalize on it and, and make a little money and, and always trying to think a little bit outside the box and, and just see it, see a need and try and meet the need. And, and then, you know, in high school, I took some, some of the uh, trade courses, you know, welding, and I learned the basics of welding and uh, fabrication and, and building. And, and then work construction. When, when I left high school, I left high school a couple months before graduation. I was cruising along with a three point something grade average and only had two classes and way ahead on credits and board and and was offered a, a great paying construction job. And I thought, you know, I don't really need that piece of paper. So I went and took the job and, and worked construction for, you know, general construction, labor, carpenter, concrete work, that sort of thing for a couple of years. And then when I was about 20, I went to work for my father in his mill that he was building in the Lewis and Clarkson Valley. And it was a whole log chipping plant that would take what are known as pulp logs, defective logs that the sawmills don't want, and chip them up into chips for the for for pulp to make paper. Because there is a paper mill in Lewiston, pretty sizable one. And so I went to work for him, and and that was sort of when everything sort of clicked for me. I my I got to utilize my welding skills, equipment operation, building skills because we actually built the plant ourselves. And, and then, and then started running it after it was built. And, and it was my father actually that came along and said, you know, this, and this is, this is in like 80, about 1980, approximately 81. He said this, this house log thing is starting to really take off. And it was really centered at that time in the Bitterroot Valley in Montana, based around a, a large volume of, of beetle killed lodgepole pine that was covering a big geographic area in Montana and but it was really starting to take off and back then it was just you know they were cabins nobody was building big you know sophisticated opulent log homes that hadn't really been considered as a any kind of a significant business model and but these we were we were getting a lot of beautiful dead logs into the chip mill and it just seemed a shame to chip them up to make paper when they could go into a beautiful log cabin. And so by this time, I was the manager of the of the chipping operation at about some 30 plus guys under me. And I was 20 or 21 at the time. And, and he said, well, in your spare time, build this, build a mill to, to make logs for log homes. And so I did. And that was before, you know, the internet or anything. So I went I got intrigued by it all, and I went to the library and got books on log cabin building, and and would read at night. And you know, I, I read every day, and I try and do my own research, and and I became enamored with the whole thing. And and so within a year or so after that, he sold the chip mill to a big a big corporation from the Portland, Oregon area, and they didn't really want to have anything to do with the house log side of the little operation. So at that, at that time, I decided to go into business you know, on my own and and, uh, and start my my log home company, which which I did. And uh, so that was about about eighty two when I started.
Yeah. And and the rest, as they say, is history, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess I'd have to say that, you know, my, I have a, in my genetics, I have sort of a perfectionist side to me and, and I, and I like to do things differently. And so within this industry, you know, I did recognize at that young age that the industry was in its infancy and that getting in on an industry that I felt was going to really blossom, getting in early, I felt was a good idea. Most of my family thought I was crazy. Because the big corporation did ask me to stay on as, as the general manager of the chipping facility and offered me a, a wage that, you know, in today's dollars was probably a quarter of a million a year or something like that. And, you know, here I am with a, don't even have a high school degree. And, and that was a lot of money to turn down. <laughs> so most, most thought I was crazy and questioned, questioned my sanity, but I never did. It was actually the, the first, decision, I'd say probably maybe only the only one I ever made that I had zero doubt about. Yeah. And I knew I could make it. And, and so, so did. And, and each time as we've evolved as, as a company uh, or a group of companies, it's been about either needing to evolve or, or sort of think outside the box to address a downturn in, in the industry. Or, or, or just you know, trying to stay ahead in in the evolution of the industry, and uh, and I I do love that. Yeah, well, I think you made you know you made that tough decision that all entrepreneurs kind of look back on and say that was the one, right? And mm-hmm. you know, I had a conversation with a guy yesterday who made the opposite decision, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he he had he'd been working at an organization for. A decent amount of time. He was making good money, had good benefits. His wife was pregnant and, you know, his, his friend slash coworker was, was going to start his own organization. Essentially, there were some, some customers of the current organization saying, you know, you really should just start your own company. We appreciate what you do. We're not enamored with the current company that we're, you know, that you work for. And so he took that leap and, asked the guy that I was speaking to yesterday to be his partner 50-50 and start the organization. And because his wife was pregnant and because the benefits were there and because the wage was there, he opted to stay. Well, the friend went and started the organization. Fast forward several years, he ends up, you know, going over and working for him and, and running the organization and getting some equity, right? But not 50-50 equity because he didn't make that leap. And, you know, I, I think to this day, it's, I don't know if it, he would term it as a regret because he, he did what he needed to do for his family and he was, he was comfortable with that, but that's the difference between an entrepreneur maybe, and somebody who is a good operator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've in my, in my professional uh, career thus far, I've seen a lot of good operators, um, but entrepreneurs, that is, a, that is a special breed, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about Edgewood. I mean, anybody who's looked into log homes, specifically in the Western U.S., and, and probably anywhere, quite frankly, has heard of, of Edgewood homes. You know, I, I've looked at log cabins over the years and my wife goes back and forth on whether that's the, the aesthetic that she's interested in and, you know, whatever. And so 
we haven't pulled the trigger on anything for us personally, but what makes Edgewood different than the other log cabin, you know, home builders that are out there? Well, you know, there, there are, essentially there are two types of log homes. There's the milled log home where the logs are quasi-uniform. And, and then there's handcrafted log homes. And the mill log homes, of course, are using machinery to do uh, most, most or all the work. I think it's just what, it's, what it sounds like. It's done, you know, with guys with chainsaws and chisels and tools and, and very little, if any, heavy equipment is utilized other than lifting devices for, you know, cranes and that sort of thing for handling the logs. But the, the fitting of the logs is done primarily by hand. As you might imagine, that's a laborious, very linear process, whereas the milling is can be done much, much faster. And historically now, for the last 30 years or so, handcrafting is, is pretty well known as being more expensive and more authentic, et cetera. And uh, milling being uh, tends to be done, utilized more for cabins and smaller homes, whereas the big opulent homes tend to be handcrafted or some level of handcrafting. Um, and uh, so those are differences uh, in the industry. And most, all of them, I would say basically all of them now, I mean, the, the, the Great Recession wiped out a huge swath of the log home industry. And so there aren't many left. In fact, I realized recently that I'm of the group that really started in in the late 70s and early 80s in western montana northern idaho i'm the only one still doing it (laughs) (laughs) i didn't dawn on me until recently even though it's been that way for about 10 years now but you know i know a lot of those old those owners that that have retired or sold and so you know sometimes we even stay in touch sometimes but but basically I, i i would have to say at this point that whether it's handcrafted or milled, that they're still basically suppliers of a log package. That's their business model for the most part. Now, they have, do have some that are trying to do what's known as a weather-tight shell, and they and they have varying levels of, of success with that, but they're bringing in a, a, maybe a set of drawings from, another, from the internet or their cousin drew it or whatever, and then, and then that company is going to either handcraft or mill a package of logs and or weather tight shell to fit that design that someone else did. So, so that is, that by definition is a supplier of a custom product. Edgewood is a design build company of sophisticated log home projects. And so a client comes to us, I'll, I'll use a current project as an, as an example. This is in Colorado. And the client first contacted me about three years ago and said, you know, I, I grew up in this small town in Colorado. I moved to Denver. I made my way. I've, I'm successful. I want to I build my dream log home back in my little hometown and eventually resettle back there. And, but, you know, we'll use it part-time in the meantime. And he said, and we've done our homework and we've been stalking you for about five years. And we're not talking to anyone else and we don't want anybody else to do it. And we understand about where the price points are. So how do we get started? And, and so I, that's one of the reasons Edgewood now just does one project at a time, which 
further in the discussion leads into the you know the genesis or why did I create Big Cabin and what's the difference between the two. But I realized during the recession, really, that I really just wanted to focus on one project at a time so I could give that client that direct focus on their project from initial consultation of, is this a good site or not? And if so, where and how is it oriented like an architect does? And that's really how I'm, I'm that's the role I'm playing at that point. And help with budgeting and overall scheduling, et cetera, that, that the general contractor often does. And at this point, that a ch- contractor had not been chosen. And that's very typical of an Edgewood project. And so then we work through initial budgeting. I do a, a takeoff that gives kind of a, a general description of the home. Again, it's not been designed yet. Oftentimes using a past project as a basis model for for, the, for theirs, which we did in this case as well. And we just, we outline square footage and, and rooms per level and come up with an overall budget uh, for our design service and materials production and delivery and, and on-site assembly and or technical assistance in assembling it. And, and then, so we walk the client all the way through the design, manufacture the package. We even help they make decisions on the general contractor. I interviewed the general contractors on their behalf. And one was chosen. And then we worked directly with the GC during the construction phase. And even even get involved with the, the selection of colors and interior finishes. And so the interior designers work closely with us and help and we help make the client make the right decisions in those areas. And it and, and a complete edge with the project delivered is already stained and finished, which is very unusual in the industries because I, I see that as a huge plus in that it not only eliminates a lot of the on-site inconsistencies of different tradespeople showing up when they want and not and and not understanding log homes perhaps because that's another big issue is a, a very this is about a 14, 15,000 square foot home. And many times the subtrades have not experienced that level of sophistication in a log home and and things don't always get done the way they should. And that's one of the reasons I decided with Edgewood that we would just do one at a time. We would do it. My clients would always say, they tell me, Brian, we wish you'd do more because everything you guys do were great, but the sub did this and did that. So that's, I try to eliminate as many of those inconsistencies as possible with Edgewood. And, and that's really, really what we do at Edgewood is that we're, we're the owner's agent all the way through the process and not a supplier. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting concept, you know, as, as you think about the construction industry as a whole, that there's not really a descriptor or a word that would, that you would use to explain what it is that you guys do. Right. Cause you're not just the architect you're not the general contractor. You're not, you know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's different aspects of the the build that you're involved in all the way along, in addition to being the supplier of the logs themselves. Correct. Yeah, it is extremely unique and it does, it does not fit into the mainstream business or, you know, construction model. You know, typically a client would would decide they want to build their, you know, their dream log home in the mountains. And, and the first thing they usually do would seek out an architect 
And unfortunately, there's no log architecture 101 in, in school. There's every one of them that has ever done log has had to learn as they go, as I did. And some of them have gotten quite good at it and some haven't, but they hire an architect and then they, the architect's engineer may or may not have experience with log and the structural engineer. And then they have to select a general contractor. You know, now we've got three different entities coming together that may or may not have significant experience in high and sophisticated log home design and construction. And then they, that gives those individuals, not that this always happens, but it happens often, gives those individuals somebody else to point fingers at. And uh, so when things take longer and cost more, they can say, well, the engineers made us do this. And the log guy said they have to do it this way. And so in, the, in our scenario, there's only one place to point a finger and it's directly at me. Yeah. Yeah, which I mean, obviously makes sense as to why you only do one project at a time. And, and you know, I think the fact that you just mentioned that the one you're doing in Colorado right now is, you know, 14 or 15,000 square, square feet. So this is not, these are not low cost builds that, that you guys are doing at Edgewood. Correct. Yeah, they tend to be, we've got another one coming up next year that's actually a little bit larger in North Idaho and a similar situation and story. And it's interesting, our client base, the demographic is is so amazingly similar and consistent. You know, they tend to be self-made, successful individuals. And and they they understand and appreciate that that they they want you know, in the case of the North Idaho client, what his words to me was, I want you to design and build a work of art so I can live there the rest of my life. And so they they seek out the best. One of the reasons they've been successful as individuals is in their own businesses is they seek out the best talent. They turn them loose. They pay them well. They don't expect them to do it for nothing. And it's a, it's a, it's actually a wonderful business for me because a, a tremendous amount of fulfillment comes from helping these 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 folks you know achieve their dream. Yeah. So we're going to get into the difference between Big Cabin and Edgewood, right? And you've you've kind of laid that out just a little bit, but is Edgewood where you spend ninety percent of your time, a hundred percent of your time, seventy percent of your time? How what's your personal time split between the two? Well, right now it's mostly Big Cabin for two reasons. One is Edgewood because I've been doing this for so many years already. I've gotten pretty efficient at it with the, with the support staff I have. But also because Big Cabin is sort of still its infancy, so to speak. It's more or less a startup. And, and so I'm having to spend quite a bit of time on Big Cabin. So right now I'm more probably 30, 70 between Edgewood and Big Cabin, but the goal within the next two years is to have it back to where it's about only about 10% Big Cabin and the rest is Edgewood and some of the other things I want to do with my time. Gotcha. So, I mean, obviously those who aren't looking on video, I, by the way, you look great for your age, but when, you, when you've when okay. been doing this for 40 years, you're not a young guy. So you've obviously got other things that you want to do with, with your life as you get older as well. Right. But- you know, let's let's talk about Big Cabin, Edwood, why you started Big Cabin, why you refer to it as a startup, how long it's been operating, and then what is your plan to get to where you're spending very little time in, in Big Cabin? 
so so big cabin it's an idea i had i started with this idea probably at least 50 close to almost 20 years ago now this i had this idea of creating a second company and 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 its main purpose was to allow me to as i said focus on one project at a time the edgewood client and project which I, i love the entire process when i'm able to focus on it directly and also give me more free time to do things, other things I want to do. But also, I've got a large facility, a large production facility. I mean, we we were probably one of the one of the top three to five producers in handcrafted log home world before the recession, just in dollar volume wise. You know, we did a twenty seven million dollar ski in ski out condo project in Telluride, Colorado, that was twelve ten thousand square foot. You know handcrafted custom log buildings that were very, very ornate and, you know, 45 courses of log high, 45 corners, very complex. I don't know. I don't know. I actually don't know anybody else that may have, there might be a few that could at the time that could have done it, but so we, we could produce a lot and we still can. And my staff is, is still with me. And so I wasn't going to be able to keep them busy with one, one house at a time. And so I thought, why not take some of these unique building systems that I've invented over the years, of which there are, we, we focused in on four of them. There are a few others, but I didn't, we're focused on four systems with Big Cabin and, and make them available to the masses. You know, I remember one time having an architect from our, from Colorado call me and it was, it was either Vail or I'm sure which, which resort it was, but uh, he said, you know, we saw this home you did in Breckenridge with the glass forest. And I've got a project coming up. It's not log, but we'd love to have a glass forest in it. And I just said, oh, thank you. I appreciate the the comments, but uh, we only do glass forest and Edgewood projects. And so off he went. And so I thought, what if what if we could answer yes to that question? And so, so Big Cabin's main focus and description is, you know, we're a a very sophisticated supplier, a very sophisticated building systems unique to the to the mountain architecture world. Now we've got mountain modern, which are flat roof, you know, contemporary style buildings, but they still incorporate a lot of metal and a lot of wood, high end finishes and so on. So so Big Cabin is meant to be a factory direct source to architects, developers, builders, and some do-it-yourselfers even that, that have the sophisticated sophistication to do it, of these systems that were previously only available to Edgewood clients. So that's really what Big Cabin's purpose is. And we're doing a lot of that with Big Cabin. And moving forward, why I still call it a startup is we're learning as we go. You know, each of the four systems, one of my guys very, very intuitively said one time, you know, each, any one of these four systems could be its own business. And, you know, I never thought of it that way until he said it, but he's absolutely right. And we weren't sure which one would be the most, you know, popular or take off the most, you know, the, the Schaefer wall system, which I created and, and received a patent for is the, is the world's first panelized handcrafted log wall system that comes with the only guarantee only written warranty i know of for a log home not to settle Hmm. and uh, that's 
I I've been careful not to publicly, you know, put that out there too much because I'm trying to match our production capacity with demand. But that has been taking off as I anticipated it would. So we've just built a new computerized production line to help us keep up with demand. But the other area that really has taken off is, has been the Schaefer Wood antiquing process to siding and timbers, et cetera. So again, we've this year we've built a, a new production line for that and, and learned a lot along the way. So we still kind of feel like it's still kind of a, a startup at this point. Yeah. So for, for lack of a better term, because I think this diminishes what it is that, that you guys do at Big Cabin, but you're you're essentially building these handcrafted, very sophisticated building kits for log homes. Is that is that a fair way to put it out there in, in terminology that most of the world would understand? Yes, yes. A lot of our clients are choosing to to come to Big Cabin instead of one of the other traditional log home companies for a log home kit based on someone else's design, not Brian's design, not Edgewood's design, because they see the value in those sophisticated building systems, the Schaefer wall, the thermal blanket roof, et cetera. And so that that's its own market right there. But then we also have a number of projects where we're doing one in North Carolina this next spring where we're doing just a glass forest in a, in a contemporary mountain modern home. We are doing a ton of our Shoshugi Bond timber and, 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 and log siding projects that are going on commercial buildings. Did a big building at University of Idaho a couple of years ago. And, in, and then we also have another project where it's a conventional lakeside you know, conventional construction, stick frame construction, lakeside home, but they wanted the feeling of log in the ceiling. So they're doing a thermal blanket roof system with log supports and, and all the bison board over the top. And so, yeah, it basically you can come and select as much or as little of these systems that you want to include into your project. Yeah. All right. So you've kind of mentioned the four the four things that you guys focus on outside of just the fact that your your building kit is is pretty sophisticated in the way that it comes together and you know like you said pre-stained all that kind of stuff but the the four things just to kind of reiterate for the listening audience the glass forest the Schaefer wall the Schaefer wood and then thermal blanket roof system those are the main four things that you guys do and and obviously I I can see why your employee mentioned that those could be four separate companies and and it it makes all the sense in the world but let's just kind of go through one by one what each of those are so the glass forest that's probably the thing that made you guys famous to begin with right like that's probably the one thing that's that put you guys on the map so tell us what the glass forest is yeah yeah you you, you're absolutely right about that so i created the first one in we did a a parade of homes house in in coeur Built, designed it in 96, I think, and built it in 97, and the Creative Homes was 98. But I'd had this idea, and it came from, again, listening to my clients. A lot of times I'd become pretty good friends with my clients, and they'd have me, if I'm in their town, they'd have me over, you know, years later for dinner or something. And I'd always ask, you know, what do you like best? And and one of the comments, there were a number of comments that were impactful to me, but one of them that I heard over and over again, it was always from 
from the wife and not the husband. And, and it was, I just, I wish that wall was all glass, you know, usually the great room, you know, facing the view. And, and so I had this idea and it also, you know, harkens back to my time I spent in Japan and working with master carpenters in Japan and architects in Japan where, you know, residential architecture is, is still largely defined by blurring the difference between interior and exterior space. And so, so this idea was, how can I, how can I do that? What she just said, how can I make that whole wall glass and still hold the roof up, you know? And so finally got the opportunity to try it. I couldn't, I tried to explain it to a couple of clients and they just, it was too outside the, their realm of, you know, comprehension. And so I had to do it in a spec home that I was a part investor in. And, uh, and that, that started, it got published in a magazine and, and, and basically what it is, is, and all our systems are actually fundamental, fundamentally ridiculously simpler. But, you know, like Leonardo said, you know, that's the ultimate form of sophistication is simplicity. And so it basically is a system where it's actually a, a, what's known as a moment frame, which is probably most folks don't understand what that means, but it's a structural term. So it can withstand earthquakes and, and usually done with steel. And we do it with wood. And and it allows us to do floor to ceiling glass. And we have a direct relationship with the glass panel manufacturer in Canada. And so we're able to do to offer these unique building system, this unique building system as a structural system, completely air and bug and watertight. And comes with a 10-year warranty through the manufacturer because of our mutual understanding for engineering and, and installation. And so that's that's really the definition of a glass forest, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, I tell you, if, you, if you're going to build a home of any kind in a place that has just a completely picturesque view, like Coeur d'Alene has many of, right, or any lake in Wisconsin or Michigan or, you know, whatever, where where there's that type of a view or Utah or Colorado. I mean, these places that just have these crazy picturesque views, I can certainly understand why that floor to ceiling is, is something that draws people in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right. It has been our main drawing card for the last, you know, 25, 30 years. So the, the next one, the next, next system, I guess uh, would be the Schaefer wall system. One of the other comments I heard from these clients, you know, sitting in there at their dinner table late, years later is, you know, they'd say, just love, you know, we just love, you know, we, you know, wish that wall was glass. We just love the roof logs and the roof, you know, the cathedral ceiling and all that. No, not one of them ever said, yeah, we just love the walls. Mm. So I thought at that time, and it was 97 when I first, first started thinking about this, and it was due to this Hong Kong stock market crash. July 7th of 97, the Hong Kong stock market crashed because of the, in January 1st of 98, Britain was hanging, handing Hong Kong over back to China. And so the, in anticipation of that, their, their stock market crashed. And that wiped out my, my business in Japan and the Philippines that I'd enjoyed for a while. So out of necessity, I needed to figure, and it, it, devalu it devalued the, all of the Pacific Rim currencies about 35% against the U.S. dollar, including the Canadian dollar. Mm -hmm. 
So now suddenly the Canadian handcrafters could come down with their Canadian handcrafted and just clean our clocks. <laughs> there was nothing we could do. We couldn't discount enough. We could, and we, you know, at a loss is the only way we could do anything. So I had to get innovative. And, and so one of the biggest issues I've hear, heard from clients over the years is that, again, you know, we deliver a great, beautiful log package and then the guys on site may, you know, may mess it up or take longer or whatever. So I thought, how can I, how can I eliminate that issue? And so the, the panelization of, of the log walls, which just came to fruition a few years ago, took a long time to figure it out is, is really the end result of that to, to, so now when a project, when a, when a wall package arrives, it's already assembled. The windows are installed and trimmed out. The electrical's been run. The slots for the interior partitions to, to fit against have been cut. The the logs are stained and chinked. This is a the the the, the time frame that it takes on site to do that. All of that work to those walls is on average house is three to five months, depending on weather and subtrades getting along and et cetera, and all those things. And all of that is wiped out by a Schaefer wall package, it arrives that way. And they typically go together in about a week or two at the most. And we provide an on-site technician to work with the local trades people to see that it goes together correctly. So that's, and it's, and, and every wall is what's known as a shear wall, which is another, you know, structural term. So ex extremely strong, non-settling. Now we've taken handcrafted log construction onto the same level as any other type. So you don't have to, the architects don't have to worry about settling. Every wall is a shear wall. A lot of a lot of options available to to designers and architects. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah that's very innovative. I mean, just it, you, you think of for me, that makes me think of a manufactured home on steroids, right? I mean, even manufactured homes don't show up completely set up like that, but they do come in pieces that can be put together. So it's that plus, 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 so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the whole, you know, the, the I think one of the industry terms is, you know, component or, you know, panelized, there's a number of different terms that are used for it, but that, that is not the dirty word it used to be. There's some amazing companies out there building these kit style but although they, they they customizable, very customizable, and they're high end and they're gorgeous and they're long lasting, and you get better quality control of the actual construction process in that controlled environment in the in the factory, because those guys are there every day. They get to go home at night. They're not traveling. You you can you can really oversee the quality control much much better than out on a site on the side of a mountain somewhere, where guys are tired tired of traveling and and don't give their best effort. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the quality of tools or, you know, machinery is going to be far superior inside of a, a manufacturing facility, as opposed to the guy, you know, putting his, his own square on the, the log and saying, yep, that's square or, you know, whatever stick frame, whatever it is, making sure that it's square. I mean, I've lived in enough homes over my lifetime to know that very few walls are actually square or straight. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, folks, you know, because the layperson can't walk around a room like, you know, you or I could that 
and and just pick it out and say that wall's not plumb. You know, I can just tell by looking at it. You know, and they they just think everything works and they assume it's all square and plumb. Yeah, yeah. You assume that until it's time to replace the tile or the the hardwood, and then you think, wait a minute, why isn't this straight? Because I know the hardwood is. <laughs> so... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So the the third Schaefer system is the thermal blanket roof, and that is a one of the biggest issues I've found. And this again, trying to trying to address a need. I was on a job in in Breckenridge, Colorado, and the the framing contractor was had been hired to to frame the roof. We'd done the log work, and and, and we were there helping him by making specific cuts in the logs where the roof needed to go, and that flashing details, that sort of thing. And, uh, and it was winter and it had, like happens all the time in Colorado, you know, they got a good eight to 12 inches overnight. And then it was a bluebird day in the morning and most of his crew didn't show up. And, and I, and I, Kevin was his name and great builder. And I said, Kevin, what's up? You know, we got work to do here and, you know, we're here from Idaho to work. And he goes, this is my world. He goes, I, I can't, this is a resort town. I have to you know, his term, I have to, I have to hire knuckle draggers is what he, he called snowboarders who can't even spell hammer as, as framers and pay them 25 to $30 an hour and hope that they show up. And, and, you know, that's it. So I thought, you know, this is just terrible. Here's my client paying all this money, not getting the best craftsmanship, not getting attention to detail, not, not focused on their dream like we are. And so I thought, how can I create a roof system that is much faster to install and better. And the, one of the other issues is that you typically finish the ceilings of these cathedral roof systems with what I call store-bought material, two by six or one by six tongue and groove. We've all seen our tongue and groove roof systems all over the, all over the mountains. And uh, that is typically kiln dried to 19% moisture content by Western Wood Products standards. And when you're building in at you know nine thousand feet in Colorado, uh, wood dries out to seven on average. Going to float moisture content of seven to nine percent, not nineteen. So years later, inside this house that they spend all this time and money building, the the boards separate. It doesn't look right. So I went. I did some research, and back in England, you know, in you know in the nineteenth century, you know. It, Post and beam homes were very popular. So they were, you know, timbers, but they'd have a few posts and a few beams on the roof. And then they'd put heavy planks over those beams, big, thick, heavy planks. And then oftentimes, you know, thatch roofs or sod roofs back then. I thought, well, I, I've already got the beams on the roof. They're logs or timbers. Why don't I make big planks and kiln dry them to, you know, 10% and, and make them myself? And so I came up with the thermal blanket roof to address that need. And so now what it is, is a heavy three by 10, we call it bison board that we make ourselves. We built a machine to make it. And, and then that goes down over the roof logs. And then these big foam panels go over that, that already have the roof sheeting glued to the foam and it's expanded polystyrene which can never lose R value because the R value is derived by the air molecules trapped in the expanded polystyrene it's impervious to water they build docks on the lakes and rivers with the, with the product so it never loses our value and because we're going over a structural decking we don't have to put any rafters in so there are no thermal breaks in the roof 
It's a solid blanket of foam from facial line to facial line. And one of the, aside from being extremely energy efficient, because about in a conventional rafter roof system, you, you've got 30 to 40% of it that has the square footage of that roof, 30 to 40% of it is, is thermal breaks, which means temperature transfer through the, through the insulation. Now the insulate between the rafters are the thermal breaks, but we've all looked up on roof systems, you know, in the winter in the mountains and seen these stripes on the roof where, where the snow's melted or the frost line's not about every 16 inches. And that's where those rafters are. That means heat is, is, is escaping there. Those are thermal breaks. We have zero thermal breaks and and we have no cold soffits because we run the foam all the way to the fascia line. So one of the one of the benefits that I hadn't even thought of until after we'd built it, and I got a call from a contractor in Steamboat, Colorado, that said, you realize you created a system that, that won't have any ice dams. You can't have ice dams. I said, no, I never thought of it. But yeah, because there are no cold soffits, we, we eliminate the potential of ice dams as well. So amazingly energy efficient, faster to install fewer pieces to install and will never lose its art value. Hmm. So that's so, the thermal blank. Yeah. So is there any reason that that couldn't be used in a traditional stick frame home as well? And none at all. In fact, that's, that's really one of the, the prime directives for the thermal blanket is to help people understand you can have your architect design this stick frame lakeside or mountain home and it could have, yeah, it can have flat roof, you know, mountain modern, very popular right now. And we're doing a number of them where they bring the drawing stud. They send us the drawing by email and we go through and design a thermal blanket roof with exposed timbers or logs and bison board over the top and, and putting that beautiful ceiling, structural and finished ceiling. Again, all the materials arriving pre-finished, stained, so you can build in any weather for conventional stick frame homes. Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty intuitive. All right, so we're yeah. running out of time, Brian. We gotta hit the Schaefer wood. Okay, so Schaefer wood is more of a process. It's, a, it's an antiquing process that I spent about eight years developing. Only got it to a point where I'm truly happy with it within the last two years. And it's a it's a proprietary system of, of heavy charring, like the Japanese shoshugi bond we've probably all heard of uh, process of charring the wood and brushing the residue, the residual off, and then and then staining or pre-finishing it. And uh, we apply that to siding. Very very popular. That's the other big growth area for big cabin is is our siding and fascia. These are areas that get a lot of punishment from the sun, ultraviolet degradation and moisture and snow, et cetera. So by heating it this much, you actually case harden the wood and it helps make it less likely to catch on fire. It's less desirable for wood boring insects and it is more, it can fend off the, the negative effects of ultraviolet degradation and moisture much, much better than regular wood. Again, it's applied to siding and fascia and, and timbers, beams, etc. And that's essentially the Schaefer wood processor system. Gotcha. Yeah, really, really cool process because that's that's a, all the things you mentioned right, are, are big problems, whether it's termites or just just the exposure to the sun or the weather of any kind. That's that's a big, big deal. And 
not to mention it just gives you the ability to make it show up completely sealed and looking nice and and protected for the homeowner yeah exactly exactly all right so like i mentioned Brian, we're kind of coming to the end of time here so i've got one you know kind of final last question for you here you know, you mentioned that over the next few years, you want to get to where you're spending less time in in uh, big cabin, more time in Edgewood, and then also just have more time for you to be able to spend doing the things that that you love doing. So, what what is the ultimate succession plan, exit plan for you personally with with the companies? Well, I, I see Edgewood. I don't see a big, any any significant changes with Edgewood in, in ownership or anything there. It's 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 my baby. It's what I love to do. And if I can if I can do it like I have been over the last number of years, one project at a time. It doesn't take all my time. And so, and I still love to physically work and go outside and work. And so I'll be doing some. In addition to that, I'll be doing some of my own developing. And and then Big Cabin, I anticipate that, and I've actually already have fielded a couple of, of interested parties, which are, for lack of a better term, competitors in the marketplace that have seen what we're doing and going, you know, again, their words, I can't compete with that. That's, I don't want to have, I don't want to try and ramp up and compete with that. Can I, can I buy in? Can I, can I, can we merge? You know, what are, you know, what can we do? So I anticipate Big Cabin will probably be probably entertain some offers where it's an existing entity, and it, 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 I'll be very very careful about that. Buys in and becomes part of it, adds what we're doing to their existing product line and sales force, and so on, and and relinquish some ownership there, and and but with that comes additional volume and et cetera. So that's that's most likely. But I've got a big 80-acre facility north of Coeur d'Alene where all the machinery and all the people are that, that do this this production. And and we'll be keeping them busy uh, with Big Cabin there, I'm sure, one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I read in your in your bio and description of the company is that, you know, those those people have been with you a long time. They're they're like family to you. They're very important to you. And so any decision that you make about the future of the company will will certainly incorporate them into that decision. Yeah, you're right. Although I will say that this is how humble they are. Uh, they they constantly tell me, Brian, don't worry about us. No one's worked harder than you to get where we all are, and we appreciate everything you've done for us. If you if you decide to turn the key and walk away. There'll be no hard feelings. Don't worry about it. You know, so that's, that's how, that's how good a people they are. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great sign of, of what you've meant to them over the years and what they've meant to you. So that's, you know, hats off to you for, for being able to pull that off. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So last thing for you, Brian, just throw out there the best way to get in touch with either Edgewood or Big Cabin if, if people have a need or a desire to, to connect further. And the website is the best way. So Edgewood is edgewoodlog.com. That's singular. And Big Cabin is simply bigcabin.com. All right. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to to have you tell your story here on on the show and what you guys are doing to innovate, uh, you know, an area of of the economy that people wouldn't think is super innovative. So I I really appreciate the, the story there. Oh, thank you, Austin. I appreciate the opportunity to, to tell the story. Yeah, you bet. 
You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us next week for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.